This episode of Innovation Heroes is brought to you by Autodesk. Visit shi.com slash Autodesk for more info. Welcome to SHI's Innovation Heroes, a podcast exploring the people and businesses making a difference in our constantly disrupted world. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. Space, a final frontier. Imagine a future where the ways we store our data, grow meat for our dinner tables, and manufacture materials were totally out of this world. Literally. As in, all of those things could be happening in orbit. It sounds like something right out of the Jetsons, but the future of industrialized commercial space might be here sooner than we think. We're not quite there yet, of course. In the past 10 years, we've been able to make spaceflight a lot safer and more reliable. But there's still a ways to go before we enter the next phase of modern spaceflight. I think it's more than anything driven by a willingness to fail. And the reason I say that is if you go back to the 50s and 60s, we were developing things at a pace that I'm not sure we've met yet. Maybe it's because we don't have the kind of pressure cooker situation that birthed the first space race. But if that's the case, then we might just be in luck or rather out of it. With the growing consumption of resources, population concerns, carbon emissions, forest fires, and any number of other human-caused problems, we need to start thinking big when it comes to saving the planet. If we're going to put our civilization on a track that is not only sustainable, but also scalable, I think space is a necessary ingredient, a necessary pillar. This is step one, understand what's happening in our Earth. The goals driving the new space race are being defined in large part by private industry. Companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin are making huge progress towards some truly awesome possibilities, and they're certainly helping to pave the way for the next giant leap for humankind. But there's some practical hurdles that need to be overcome first. Luckily, I know just who to talk to. Andy Lapsa is building the tech we need to get to space and to keep going back there in a sustainable, economically feasible way. Andy spent a decade working as a rocket engineer for Blue Origin, directing the BE-3 and BE-3U engine projects, and serving as development lead test for the BE-4. He holds a PhD in aerospace, aeronautical, and astronautical engineering from the University of Michigan. And now, Andy's leading up his own space venture as the co-founder of Stoke Space Technologies, Inc. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today on Innovation Heroes. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So as, as co-founder and CEO of a company called Stoke Space Technologies, when you have space in your titles, that you're definitely going to have a pretty cool story. <laughs> Can you tell us a little about how your journey has been and tell us how you started out and, and how you got to where you are now? For sure. Um, I started out, I guess, right out of graduate school. I went to Blue Origin. We were about 100 people at that time in 2009. Um, I started out doing a number of R&D programs. And then in 2011, we started looking at something that became the BE4 engine and the New Glenn vehicle. And I was really lucky to be, you know, one of the first three people to start answering questions along those lines. And at that time it was a completely blank page. We were, um, thinking about all kinds of, uh, very basic questions that, you know, kind of, um, were the questions that you would ask if you were to build rockets for the first time. And, and they're all the right questions to be asking at that time in history, in the industry, um, really challenging the status quo and, and trying to rethink the way 
rocketry is done. And then that experience um, evolved into what is now the BE4 engine and the new Glenn rocket. And so I held a handful of different roles through that process. Um, got to lead the development testing on the program all the way up through full scale hot fire demonstration testing. And then I went on to um, run the BE3 and BE3U programs uh, as they were evolving toward human flight on the BE3 side and BE3U is the upper stage for New Glenn. So it was a earlier stage program that, um, you know, was, was really getting going. So it was an opportunity to get back in at more or less the ground floor there. The question then is, okay, why go start a new company? And that was not a linear path for me, let's say. Um, one of the things I noticed in my last couple of years at Blue is, first of all, it's a different company than when I started. It's much, much bigger. Um, and, you know, there were reasons why I wanted to start thinking about what what's next. And then the next thing that really energized me was the shift in market that started to happen in my last couple of years at Blue. Um, you started to see this really vibrant and viable commercial sector in space lots of different verticals emerging and lots of competition within each vertical. And those are kind of the ingredients that you need to have a healthy, robust economy in space. And this was all starting to happen, um, in, you know, kind of 2015, 2016 and beyond. And I got excited about, by that. And I guess maybe one epiphany I had, it's not really that profound, but, um, for me, I realized that, you know, I'm all about Elon's mission of colonizing Mars. I'm all about Jeff's mission of having millions of people living and working in space. I love both of those things, but I think if you're going to have either one of them, the ingredient that you must have first is a robust and healthy economy in space. And then that foundation is what leads to a sustainable, long-term, very grand visions. So I wanted to be a part of it. So I left Blue. Um, Yeah, I, I left Blue. I started to think about what's next. I started to think hard about um, what I view as the end state of this industry. And I started to look at the different players in the market. And, you know, honestly, my initial reaction was to go pick one and who I thought was going to be the winner and then go join it. When, when you talk with a lot of people who are involved in, in, in space and, um, you know, space ex- exploration and, and engineering, um, such as yourself, is that, is that a lifelong like love affair? Have you always looked to the skies and thought this is something that I'm always going to be involved in? Uh, or is that something that, uh, that came later? I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. When I was in elementary school, I guess, yes, I was excited by space. I was ex- excited by, uh, rockets and and that type of thing. In fact, my parents have some video where I almost laid out exactly my career path. (laughs) But then in middle school, I, you know, I kind of took a big detour. I started getting interested in art and architecture and wanted to do that for a while. And then in high school, I took math and physics. I was good at math and physics. And I said, you know what, like, I want to do that too. And civil engineering sounded cool because it was a combination of all of those things. Um, I went into college thinking I wanted to do civil, but then I took some uh, mechanical courses and I liked things that moved. I liked mechanisms. um, And so I shifted over to mechanical. Then I started getting into fluids classes and I liked that the most out of anything. So fluid dynamics and combustion became a passion. I went to grad school for that, but most of my grad school was A, pretty fundamental and B, applications for air breathing propulsion. So it really wasn't until the very end that I made full circle back to rocketry when I, you know, SpaceX and Blue Origin were still pretty young at that point. I was excited by small companies. There weren't 
there weren't the number of startups back then that there are now. And, um, you know, I thought it was a great opportunity. And so I went after it. You know, when you, when you look at these vehicles, SpaceX and Blue Origin, they kind of have their own, you know, look and feel to them. Did that architecture stick with you at all? Do you feel like you benefited from that, uh, later on in terms of, um, looking at the types of vehicles you're going to design, uh, to go into space? Well, I would say that, um, I benefited from the process as much as anything. And I would say that I benefited from the attitude that has emerged in, in space and rocketry that, you know, it is that, you know, we can reinvent this. We can do these things with relatively small groups of people now. And some of the things that seem like they should be doable in science fiction are actually doable, right? If you go back 10 years ago, 10 years ago, nobody had returned a rocket from space and landed it vertically propulsively. And that was a big question mark. There's no physics reason why you shouldn't be able to do that. But nobody had done it. And so it was a big deal when, uh, I think it was within about a month, that Blue Origin landed the new Shepard propulsion module, and then SpaceX landed the first stage successfully. I, I mean, it seems like vehicle development has really accelerated. You know, I was just doing some research. When I was a kid, it was the the space shuttle. That was the, the really, you know, the cool new thing. But you look at that program, it started in 72. The first flight wasn't until 1981. The final flight was was you know, 2011. And it seemed like it was the same vehicle over the course of, you know, concept to retirement over a 40 year period. But it seems like what you guys are doing now is, is, is happening and the development's happening much, much more quickly. Is this driven by private commercial ventures? Um, what's changed and what really flipped the switch? I think it's more than anything driven by a willingness to fail. And, and the reason I say that is if you go back to the fifties and sixties, we were developing things at a pace that I'm not sure we've met yet. <laughs> uh, if you look at the number of different programs, you know, a lot of them we haven't even heard about. A lot of the research that I go back and do and, you know, try to come up with new ideas, I go back and dig in and do research and, you know, almost everything, not only did they already think about it in the 60s, but they built it and tested it and there's a report out there for it. <laughs> um, so they just did a remarkable thing. And the, and the big difference between that era and then let's say the 70s, 80s, 90s is uh, a willingness to fail back then. And we lost that for whatever reason. Um, so what private industry I think has done is is reinject that uh, willingness to fail and you know, kind of designed around iteration better. So Stoke Space Technologies has a really cool mission as your guiding force. Can you tell me a little bit about, about that? Yeah, so um, Stoke is building fully and rapidly reusable rockets for specifically for that commercial satellite market that I talked about earlier. Um, and, you know, the way I see it, the analogy I draw is that companies like SpaceX are the freight trains to space. That's a important sector, but we are the low cost and on-demand sprinter van that takes customers directly to their final orbit. And I think that as you start to look at um, full constellations, that's actually uh, a higher value proposition. Um, how much, when you mentioned cost, like how much does cost factor into, um, you know, in terms of the, the satellites that are out there now? I mean, the cost of satellites are coming down. Is there a direct relation with um, the cost of, of, of launching into space and therefore the need for, you know, s sustainability through completely, you know, reusable vehicles? 20 years ago, 10 years ago, most satellites were still very large. Um, they were large physically and they were large monetarily, right? So it, it wasn't unreasonable to 
have multi-billion dollar satellites you know, for government purposes that are being launched into space. And in that paradigm, if a launch costs 150 million, which is about what they cost, you know, pre SpaceX, doesn't really matter that much, right? Plus or minus 50 million. Nah, it's a line item, but it's not the driver, right? Which is crazy. What's happened since then is we build satellites now that are, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, even tens of thousands of dollars. And in this new world, if your launch costs 150 million, you know, guess what suddenly is the cost driver for the whole enterprise, it's launch. Um, so we're seeing that. That I think more fundamentally than, you know, what SpaceX has done in terms of cost of launch, I think that is the more fundamental shift that's happened in the market. You mentioned a couple of them, but what are some of the other issues of that are in the way of us moving into the next phase of commercially viable um, space tech development right now? Well, cost is still a big driver. Um, you know, SpaceX advertised $5,000 per kilogram. Um, it's probably more than that if you're a small satellite, once you factor in getting from your door to your final place in orbit. Availability is no good. Um, there were, I think, 114 launches total globally in 2020, but only 55 of them were actually available to Western allies. So um, all of the rest were performed by China, Russia, and Iran. So that's just not a lot of, you know, if there are 55 planes taking off in the world in a given year, there's not just not a lot of options for where to go and when to go. So, th so that's another huge one. And then, yeah, the option value into final orbit, you know, people want to, people want to own their schedule and they want to own their budget and they want to own their orbit. And you don't get all those three with today's launch infrastructure. And because of that, people are willing to pay, um, you know, 12x and more, $60,000 per kilogram and more to go, um, you know, basically own a launch instead of own a seat on the launch. So it's a, it's still a big headwind. Yeah. I mean, those, those first FedEx ads said when you absolutely positively have to have it there overnight, not, you know, Hey, we'll get there when it gets there kind of thing. Right. So <laughs> that's right. We, we talked about 114 launches, but and we've talked about schedule. Another thing is reliability, right? We're not reliable. In 2020, 10% of all launches did, failed to make their orbit. Wow. And that's not a good that's not a good record. And and in fact, you know, it's been single digits, but solid single digits for the last handful of decades uh, in terms of launch success rate. You know, if you had even five percent of your FedEx packages were lost, you would not be a happy customer, right? I was somebody who travels pretty often. If you told me I had a 10% chance on every flight of not getting to where I was going for some reason, I might double think that uh, amount of activity. Exactly. This episode of Innovation Heroes is brought to you by Autodesk. Visit shi.com slash Autodesk for more info. Did you know that the first modern rocket was launched in 1926? The orderly march of progress has come a long way in the past century or so. But really, progress only looks orderly after it's happened. It's taken a tremendous amount of overcoming problem after problem and figuring out new answers and solutions to power us through to the next problem and the next one after that. Autodesk is helping innovators to change how the world is designed and made. It's empowering innovators everywhere to solve challenges big and small by finding new ways past whatever problem stands in their way. Autodesk tools work seamlessly with each other, providing the ultimate ease and consistency of use, as well as significant time savings. Only with Autodesk can innovators combine technologies that unleash their talent and unlock the insights needed to make the new possible. Let's not wait for progress. From greener buildings to smarter products to more mesmerizing blockbusters, 
Autodesk software helps customers to design and make a better world for all. Get started today by visiting shi.com slash Autodesk. If you're like me, your head is probably already spinning from all those huge and frankly not very hopeful numbers that Andy was able to rattle off. But buckle up, because Andy's got even more stats that are sure to blow your mind as he helps steer us into the future of commercially viable spaceflight. So in terms of affordability and availability, you know, what will we be seeing in the next 5, 10, 20 years to be able to to deliver on, you know, what's affordable and available and economical in terms of spaceflight? Let me describe this in maybe in another analogy. If you look at the aircraft world, you just alluded to it. You are able to go wherever you want to go, whenever you want to go for about $5 per kilogram uh, on commercial aircraft. And and when you look at those vehicles, the workhorse vehicles in that industry is the 737 or A320 class aircraft. Those things cost $100, $120 million, right? They are expensive. They're complex, um, but they're able to deliver you wherever you want to go, whenever you want to go at $5 per kilogram. If you look at Space Launch, the best option we have in Space Launch today is a Falcon 9. Falcon 9 costs $60 million. Uh, it's $5,000 per kilogram. Um, but it's $60 million, which is actually less than the cost of a 737, but delivers goods to final orbit at a factor of 1,000 greater than what the aircraft is doing. And the reason is not because of the complexity of the vehicle. It's not because of the cost of the vehicle. The only reason is because a Falcon 9 is only partially reused. Uh, so partially reused only a handful of times. I think their record is still number 10 reuses on the booster. And it takes about a month to turn it around, right? Which is amazing, by the way. I'm not trying to say that it's not, right? Ten years ago, those numbers were zero reuses and you know infinite turnaround, effectively. So it's amazing what's happened in the last ten years. But the, the point is that we're only beginning to scratch the tip of the iceberg. And we've got a lot more to go. We've got a whole factor of 1,000 that we can go push on as an industry. That's what we need to do. So I think... Um, vehicles that fly with very high cadence, very high frequency, um, and are 100% reusable, kind of attack attack that factor and no other approach really does. What, what do you think you can get that turnaround time down to from, um, if it's if it's a month now, um, what, what, what's the goal? Our goal is to be able to turn a vehicle around in a day. Amazing. Yeah, I don't think there's any fundamental blocker to do to that, but you have to think about it from the ground up. You can't back into it. You can't, um, you know, can't take a initially disposable rocket and say, you know, I'm going to turn it around in a day and and you know, I don't know, make some adaptation. I don't think it works that way. I think you have to design for it up front. Absolutely. Okay. So this idea of taking Earth-based tech and moving it into space um, it seems pretty incredible. Um, why do we need to be looking at making options like this possible? Basically, moving technology from from being Earth based, you know, in, into space itself. You know, why does it matter, and you know, how can we benefit from it, and what makes it the right time to to start doing that now? Here's one thing that motivates me: if you look at our place in history, we're at a we're at a very unique spot in history. Um, it's it's been about 200 years ago. Let's go back 200 years. Our global population was about half a billion people. Um, so, you know, for perspective, we've been around 
you know, tens of thousands of years, long, long, long time. And it took that long to get to half a billion people. In the last 200 years, it's a handful of generations. We've gone from half a billion people to 8 billion people. And if you were to plot that, it looks like a horizontal line and then a very distinct inflection point and a vertical line. And so we're at this point in history where our population is scaling at a uh, incredible pace. And there's all kinds of follow-on um, I guess, metrics that also follow that trajectory, right? Um, carbon emissions in the atmosphere, all kinds of things. Uh, energy production, energy use, right, is almost one-to-one. -one. You can lay those two plots almost, you know, one-for-one -one on top of each other. It's, it's pretty interesting metric. So all of this stuff is happening. It's happening in a very short period of time. I think it's fair to say that none of us fully understand what the impact of that step change has it has been and is going to be and i think so there's there's a couple of things i think that if we're going to put our civilization on a track that is not only sustainable but also scalable i think space is a necessary ingredient a necessary pillar to doing that it's also a fundamentally necessary pillar for us to understand this is step one understand what's happening in our earth you know a lot of a lot of the things that we know today are based on space-based observation things like um you know uh, our uh, ice caps melting right we get all of that from space-based observation we get um you know ocean currents we get we get all kinds of things from from space there's a lot more that needs to be done in space right one example where i think space plays a a big role is um you know, let's take uh, forest fires. Forest fires, this is a shocking statistic that I didn't know. Over 20% of our global carbon emissions come from forest fires every year. It's an amazing number. And so when you start to think about how are we going to curb carbon emissions, there's no answer that's complete unless you address forest fires. There's all kinds of other observations. You know, there's there's different um, ways to observe plastic concentration. You know, microplastics in the oceans. We can observe who major emitters of different things like plastics or like carbon or or whatever. We can figure out what those sources are, and then we can go uh, mitigate those things. So that's step one. I think I think um, not only understanding what's happening in the world, but also you know how to fix it. Those are all going to be from a space-based observation, and then. Fast forwarding, we're going to see things like manufacturing move on orbit. On orbit is actually a great place to do a lot of things with one exception. And that exception is it's really expensive. It's really slow. And it's a pain in the ass to get to space. And it's a pain in the ass to get back from space. Right? Um, but if you remove that barrier, barrier, if you allow yourself to think that way and remove that barrier, um, space is a great place for a lot of things. There's 24-hour unfiltered, unlimited sunlight. There's um, a perfect vacuum of space, a lot of um, you know, semiconductor and other uh, industrial applications require vacuum. That's actually pretty expensive and slow to create on Earth. And you're in microgravity. Microgravity is great for certain things. Microgravity is great for creating metallic alloys that are perfect with no variation. So you get you know perfect crystalline alloys in space. Um, it's great for pulling fiber optics. It's great for protein growing, which can be um, not only you know used for organ transplants potentially, but also you can grow proteins for consumption, food consumption. Um, 
there's a whole lot of different options and, and things that make sense in space, provided that it doesn't cost a lot to get there and it doesn't cost a lot to get back. So with your company's technology, it'll, it'll be more feasible to get satellites and you know innovative tech up into orbit. But what, what problems do you think making this process easier could cause? And um, are you already considering some of those solutions or, or, or avoiding, you know, the potential uh, pitfalls of, of getting tech up into space, uh, you know, easier and, and more efficiently? Well, I think in anything you do, especially, you know, we're at, in the nascent point of the industry. And, and so um, the way we have to think about it is what does this look like at massive scale, right? What does this look like when we're sending, you know, e- even one flight per day sounds pretty outlandish in, in today's world. Well, let's say we're doing one flight per day and let's say we're doing 10 flights per day or even more, right? What does that look like? And I think the obvious thing that we have to do um, is address space junk. That's a um, hot topic of, uh, you know, kind of concern as we put up thousands and thousands more satellites. But I also think that it's a entirely controllable problem. Um, Where it starts is with sustainable, I guess, delivery on orbit. So what that means is that we are not generating more junk when we put it on orbit. Um, One big uh, driver of junk, especially if we're launching thousands of times per year, is traditionally second stages, which are fully expendable. They, They go up with the satellite, they get dropped off, and then they float on orbit for years and years and years. Um, in fact, they constitute by far the largest mass fraction of all space junk on orbit today. We need to not do that. <laughs> and we need to have uh, separation systems that don't, don't have explosive bolts that, that create fragmentation on orbit and things like that, right? So that's step one, don't make more junk. I think you'll see regulation emerge on orbit uh, a little bit more. Uh, you'll see inter- inter- international cooperation emerge. Um, because if we don't do those things, we're going to be in a position of, you know, more or less mutually assured destruction where, you know, one one satellite co- collision can create many more since it's creating a, a debris field, right? So I think you're going to see those things and, and it's necessary. Talking about space, it's such a, a no- notable example of what happens when you're, you're led through, you know, you're led by innovation heroes, shall we say, you know, what, what has your industry taught you about being a successful innovator and maybe what lessons can the rest of us learn from Bezos, Musk and, and yourself? When I look back, I think that, you know, seeing the way Jeff and observing the way Elon think, I think first principles, don't be afraid to think about first first principles first, right? Don't, don't take at face value necessarily the solutions that we've seen before, because there's a lot, especially, you know, before new space started to emerge, there's a whole lot of inputs, even now, right? There's a whole lot of inputs that go into why things look the way they look and they might be optimized for things that, um, you know, frankly, no longer apply. So first principles, I think is always, always the guiding light. And then, um, I think one thing that that maybe SpaceX is is uh, should be credited for more than anything is is the way our industry thinks in terms of development, how we develop things uh, through iteration rather than necessarily through top down rigorous analysis, design, systems engineering. Um, it's the same way that you would develop something in your garage, and it's the way that engineering should be done with a judicious and careful 
combination of upfront design and analysis with a very robust system of rapid build, iterate, fail, fix. Um, and so you need to design whatever program you're working on. You need to design your program and your company to be able to do both of those things, have excellent top-notch design and experience, but also have the ability to build, test, fail, fix as fast as possible. Do you ever stop and think like, boy, from a historical perspective, we're really doing something that's going to be remembered here? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is listen, it is an amazing moment. We're just lucky to be part of this moment in history. Um, not only within the last, let's say, 100 years, but within the last 10 years also as an industry, right? I, you know, if you go back 10 years ago, you could not hire a team of people who had experience building really large-scale rocketry from a complete bank, blank page all the way up through flight. Those people simply did not exist, right? Today, you have people who have done that whole the whole walk from blank page all the way through flight, and they've done it at multiple different programs. And there are even people who've done it themselves on you know multiple times. And so I think I think the uh, ind- industry base is at a completely different point, and, and that makes us really lucky. That makes us primed to be able to attack what really is the holy grail of rocketry, right? We're not the first person by any stretch to talk about high cadence, rapid reuse of 100% reusable vehicles that go to and from space. We've been dreaming about that for at least 70 years. But we're at the moment in history where it's actually, the timing is right to, to go do this for real. Being a movie buff, I can't let you get out of here without asking this question. What is your favorite space movie? 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> Why is that? And it's just out there. It's so creative and um, crazy to think about and bizarre. And when I watched it as a kid in the 80s, it was just like full of awe and wonder. So I like that a lot. That's a great choice. Andy Lapsa, co-founder and CEO of Stoke Space Technologies. Thank you so much for your time on Innovation Heroes today. We really appreciate it. All right. And thank you for having me. It's a dark world out there, but the future is looking a little brighter thanks to people like Andy and his team at Stoke. Knowing that they're working on solutions to these big sustainability problems helps me sleep a little easier. And it's amazing to think that the first step could be something as cool as commercially viable space flight. Thanks for listening to this episode of Innovation Heroes. Next time on the podcast, I'll be speaking with Michael Benville, the Chief Creative Officer at Area 15. Sound familiar? You might remember Area 15 from earlier this season when we spoke to Intel's Stacey Shulman. Michael and his team have created Area 15 as a space that goes beyond spectatorship. They're proving what true tech-driven participation can look like in the modern world. So tune in in two weeks. You won't want to miss it. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider being our hero. Smash that like and subscribe button to Innovation Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Innovation Heroes is a Pilgrim content production in collaboration with SHI. Our producers are Tobin Dalrymple and Jessica Schmidt. Our associate producer is Olivia Trono, with production assistance from Carmi Levy, Ronnie Lattimore, Jane Norman, and Amanda Sheffer Cavanaugh. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. And I'll be back with another amazing story in two weeks.
This episode of Innovation Heroes has been brought to you by Autodesk. Visit shi.com slash Autodesk to get started.